Well, thank you, everyone, for coming. It's a great pleasure to speak to a full house, maybe too full, as I can see in the back. Uh, the subject of today's talk is perhaps a bit odd, uh, you know, given the, the, the collaboration that we were just talking about, since I will be talking very little about Islam. In fact, uh, the only time I'm going to be talking about Islam is as a counterforce to the groups that I've been, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, that I will mainly focus on. And um, let me just uh, point out that um, this is, uh, you know, basically the start or the, of a larger research project that should eventually lead to a book on uh, this topic. So today, um, the Gulf states are powerful players in global finance and politics. They're the largest oil exporters in the world, have established the richest sovereign wealth funds, and are the most important buyers of Western-made arms, and are also increasingly proactive diplomatic players. They have also spread their brand of conservative Sunni Islam around the world, effectively establishing a hegemonic discourse amongst many Muslims and are a source of funding for radical Islamist groups. This mix of a pro-Western foreign policy, their role in the neoliberal global economic order, and their funding of Islamist groups continues to puzzle many. In my view and what I'm going to argue today, the Cold War origins of political Islam and the Gulf states' alliance with the West are crucial to an understanding of Islamism and of the problems um, you know, that the Middle East faces, as well as foreign military intervention in the region. Let me start out with a few anecdotes that will give you a sense of why I think this uh, topic is of quite some importance. In 1962, Republican officers overthrew the Yemeni monarchy, which had ruled Yemen for centuries. In support of these officers, the Egyptian president, Gamal Abdel Nasser, sent tens of thousands of Egyptian troops to North Yemen in order to spread his version of Arab nationalism across the Arabian Peninsula. Saudi Arabia, on the other hand, backed the deposed royalists and the ensuing Yemeni civil war thus became a Saudi-Egyptian rivalry for regional hegemony and was the hot arena of the so-called Arab Cold War. In 1967, Marxist rebels pushed the British colonial army out of Aden in southern Yemen and established the Arab world's first and also last Marxist state. From 1965 to 75, the Dofar revolution in neighboring Oman became the focus for ideologically committed internationalists, not unlike the Spanish Civil War of the 1930s or today's Syrian Civil War. And leftist militants from across the Arab world and Europe traveled to Oman to liberate the Arabian Peninsula from its southern tip. In response... Um, you know, uh, a coup took place in Oman, and uh, Britain and uh, other um, countries, including Jordan and Iran, sent uh, military forces um, uh, to Oman. And uh, similar developments took place in other countries um, uh, of the region, including in Bahrain um, and in Saudi Arabia, where there were coup attempts um, uh, by uh, Arab nationalist officers and uh, so on and so forth. So... These anecdotes show that at the height of the Cold War, the pro-Western Gulf states that are today seen as extremely wealthy, Islamic, and conservative countries were arenas for and players in political struggles that were directly linked to the Soviet-American rivalry in the global Cold War. 
In fact, around the time of the British withdrawal in the late 1960s, when states in the region gained their independence, it looked as if the whole region may be taken over by broadly left-leaning popular movements, guerrillas, and army officers. Given the strategic importance of the Gulf and the Arabian Sea and the enormous energy resources located in the Gulf, the threat of the region falling into the pan-Arab or Soviet sphere of influence was a nightmare scenario for Western strategists that could even have altered the outcome of the wider Cold War. So these anecdotes are just supposed to give you a bit of a sense of why I think um, this part of uh, the history of the Middle East and the Cold War is of quite some importance, uh, particularly because today most of the movements that I'm talking about today have disappeared and have faded uh, from memory, both in the region and uh, when we study the region. So let me just start out, um, you know, with the period of the 1940s and 50s, where I think, um, you know, this story begins. And it begins very much with the discovery of oil across um, the Gulf states, um, uh, particularly in the 1930s, but then, you know, serious exploration in, in many of the countries only started after the Second uh, World War. And um, at that time, then, um, within the period of a few years, uh, relatively large labor forces needed to be created um, almost um, from scratch uh, to you know, ex uh, exploit the oil uh, reserves. And um, so tens of thousands of Arabs, mainly Arabs, but also um, uh, Indians and uh, uh, British and, and other um, um, workers who'd been, uh, you know, for example, in other areas of the empire, such as in India, uh, came back to the Gulf or came to the Gulf and um, uh, started to live together in oil camps, and which were usually segregated amongst the colored lines. And, um, you know, in the, in the Arab camps or in the camps for the colored people, um, you had a kind of spreading of uh, political ideas that were not so, well, that didn't really exist in the region before. Um, so together with the migration of people, you also had the migration of ideas. And in many of the places where these, um, you know, people came from, such as Egypt, Syria, uh, Iraq, uh, Lebanon, uh, and so forth, you had already a political mobilization um, along communist and Arab nationalist uh, lines um, in the decades preceding um, these developments. So these people came to the Gulf region. Um, you know, some of them were already recruited into uh, political movements, and others came uh, just with you know these ideas in mind. And um, when the conditions in the labor camps became, um, you know, quite bad, or, or more uh, visibly so, in the early 1950s, this led to quite substantial strikes and uh, labor movements, um, particularly in eastern Saudi Arabia, but also in Bahrain uh, and in Qatar. And in response to that, um, uh, the, the, you know, the leaders of these strikes were arrested and expelled, but also the situation of uh, workers uh, improved and uh, gradually, um, uh, you know, uh, better housing and employment conditions was uh, created for them. But one of the, um, you know, outcomes that we still um, are faced with today was the replacing of uh, largely Arab migrant workers 
who, you know, with the local Arab population in the Gulf, shared some uh, uh, similarities of language and culture and therefore could relate to their um, problems. And there were also many Palestinians involved here, and I will get to that later. Uh, there was a shift, a deliberate shift, to bring people from other parts of the world, particularly from Southeast Asia, who couldn't speak to the locals and who, you know, could be treated as a uh, work workforce that could be replaced um, if it created any kind of trouble. Um, and this is why um, I would argue is a big reason why today, you know, most of the expatriate population in the Gulf states comes from uh, from Asia. Um, and eventually, uh, I think, uh, I mean, these movements um, f transformed into some of the earliest political parties in the region, and the nationalization of oil resources was one of their main demands and was one of the strikers' demands, uh, a demand that was eventually realized, of course, uh, in different ways in which these uh, movements uh, thought it should be realized. But um, uh, by the late 1970s, basically, um, the oil companies across the Gulf states um, uh, were state-owned. And, um, you know, this is another one of the outcomes. So in response to that, you had the emergence of the first kind of um, opposition publications and opposition movements. And in the context of the Arab Cold War, you see uh, a lot of propaganda against, uh, emerged against, um, you know, these monarchs uh, and their Western alliance um, in the Gulf. So here you will see in the middle is the people, is, uh, you know, uh, the, the workers are uh, producing the oil. The oil is being sucked up by um, the American oil company. And then uh, to the right, you see a depiction of King Saud uh, at the time. And I won't go into much detail to uh, how this uh, is being recycled to Saudi Arabia, but basically it is uh, supposed to illustrate the situation um, at the time. Now, one thing that is quite uh, important, and I suppose I've come and found out in my research uh, as well, is that there was quite a substantial amount of ideological diversity, um, uh, especially when we look at it from today's perspective. And there were huge rivalries between the different groups that on the face of it wanted quite similar things, uh, but were uh, extremely divided amongst themselves. So you on the one hand had uh, orthodox communists, and in Saudi Arabia and in Bahrain there were you know, normal communist parties established. Um, but you also had various forms of Arab nationalism, um, uh, particularly the Ba'ath Party, which had branches uh, in the Gulf, um, both the Syrian and the Iraqi Ba'ath. Uh, but particularly popular were also the Nasserites, um, you know, particularly at the height of Nasser's popularity in the wider region. He was also very popular in the Gulf. And then most importantly, um, the movement of Arab nationalists, um, founded by George Habash and others uh, at the American University of Beirut, in the 1950s that actually established a Gulf branch um, headquartered in Kuwait and led by Ahmed al-Khatib, which was kind of in charge of, uh, you know, um, uh, changing the political landscapes uh, across the Gulf um, and further down. So the first kind of battleground, as I've mentioned in, in the anecdotes, uh, was Yemen. And I suppose Yemen... Uh, you know, was also the catalyst for a lot of the other, um, uh, you know, the other struggles uh, in the region. Um, this is the map of, uh, of Yemen in the late 1960s after it became uh, divided. So as I mentioned, from 1962 to 7, uh, there was a kind of proxy war in Yemen between uh, the Saudis and the Egyptians. Um, and um, eventually, um, of course, Egypt loses um, this proxy war partly also because it is defeated um, uh, by Israel, um, but 
partly also because of the tremendous um, uh, resources at the disposal of the Saudis, particularly, um, you know, after 1973. And this is important because this was the only really um, uh, like open confrontation in the Arab Cold War between these two, uh, you know, these two opposing visions of, of, of where the region should go. And uh, I think it's been underappreciated um, uh, ever since. Um, the second uh, important um, battleground or, or factor um, uh, is the, was the Marxist Republic of uh, uh, South Yemen. And uh, on the map here, you see um, Yemen became divided into two states, and um, uh, uh, Aden, which was uh, in one of the main uh, naval bases and, and, and uh, ports of the British Empire, and uh, in fact, uh, until 1967, still retained considerable importance um, uh, even after, uh, after the Suez War. Um, uh, British forces were driven out of Aden, um, as uh, I'm sure you will remember, and uh, the uh, Marxist Republic uh, of Yemen, was in, uh, South Yemen, was established. And quite quickly, it became a kind of um, you know, a point where uh, rebels and, and uh, opposition activists from across the region could find uh, a base and could publish from there. They were given radio stations, uh, which could broadcast into Saudi Arabia, into the smaller Gulf states, uh, and so on and so forth. And um, it also received considerable, considerable aid from the Soviet Union, um, which was um, then you know, uh, given on particularly to the Dofar rebels. Um, but I'm going to go into that um, a bit later. And, uh, you know, one example is uh, this man here, Nasser Saeed, uh, who was one of the kind of Nasserist uh, uh, opposition people uh, in Saudi Arabia. He was involved in the strikes in the 50s, then went abroad, first to Cairo, um, you know, was sponsored by Nasser. But after the uh, South Yemen was, uh, uh, um, uh, became independent, um, he relocated to Aden, and this is uh, you know announcement of an uh, army to liberate the Arabian Peninsula. Of course, that never happened. But um, uh, on a symbolic level um, uh, and in terms of threat perception, um, this was important. But I suppose the key story here um, is the story of the Dofar Revolution and um, you know of the of the political movement that that led um, uh, this armed uh, uprising. Um, and this is the logo of the main, uh, you know, uh, opposition of the main armed group that um, led this uprising. And as you will see, the slogan was quite um, all-encompassing. So the group was called the Popular Front for the Liberation of the of of, of Oman and the Occupied uh, Arab Gulf. Um, so you see, uh, the goal was uh, to uh, not just to um, you know liberate Dofar which is basically just the province, um, uh, you know, uh, here on the border with Yemen, um, but liberate the whole, um, the whole Gulf area. And this was particularly uh, problematic for, um, uh, you know, for the rulers of that area and for, you know, British officials, um, because uh, it came at a time when Britain was preparing to withdraw from the region. And a lot of the smaller Gulf states, which eventually became the United Arab Emirates, um, lacked um, quite a lot of legitimacy, and there was quite some uncertainty whether they would, um, you know, survive as independent states. So a group like this, which um, uh, said it would, uh, you know, unify these smaller 
Emirates into you know, one political entity um, that would be independent of the West uh, consist constituted a, you know, quite a considerable uh, threat. The first few years of this Dofar uprising uh, was led by a local, uh, more kind of tribal uh, opposition-based uh, group called the, um, um, the Dofar Liberation Front. But by 1968, uh, this more politically-minded group that formed um, uh, FLOAG um, started to take over the, the kind of uh, struggle in, uh, in Dofar. And this is important because... Um, these were people, um, they came from other Gulf states, so some of the leaders of Floag were from Kuwait or from Bahrain. They relocated uh, to Dofar and became you know, members of the leadership of this group, and they really, for a couple of years, um, had a pretty you know, radical uh, agenda and um, you know, managed to get uh, some of the funds from the Gulf states, I mean, through donations in Kuwait, uh, uh, Bahrain, and, and so on and so forth, uh, and used that uh, to buy um, weapons and, and supplies for the rebels. Um, so it was a kind of early um, example of, of what we see today in much more extreme fashion in the sense that you know, the wealthy Gulf states, private citizens can organize themselves and uh, can you know, collect considerable amounts of money to fund a revolution somewhere else. So um, uh, and some of these people, particularly the Kuwaitis, didn't very much like to go to Dofar. They preferred to stay in Kuwait and collect money and uh, you know, feel themselves part of a revolution um, rather than go there. Again, something that is uh, you know, also happening um, today, if you like, armchair revolution. Um, but... Um, it also meant that eventually there was a kind of break between these more, you know, ideologically committed internationalists and the local Dofaris, which um, uh, eventually, you know, uh, started to be, well, they were either defeated militarily um, or they uh, made deals with the uh, government. This is one of the, you know, pictures of the... Of, of the group that um, uh, led the uprising. In fact, there are many more. So, um, you know, we're dealing here with groups that were very much integrated into the kind of third world liberation struggles. They used the same uh, language as uh, other groups in Latin America and Africa. Um, they used the same uh, symbols, uh, the same kind of visual language. Um, so they were integrated into, you know, um, uh, the kind of... Uh, struggles particularly of the 1970s and one important aspect uh, of of this was um, the kind of international solidarity campaigns uh, particularly in Europe but also elsewhere and across the Arab world uh, across the Arab world particularly organized by the Palestinians some of our guests are laughing were you at that uh, meeting or uh... not quite mm. not quite okay um, so uh, yes, of course, yeah. So, um, obviously, there was the Gulf Committee, uh, you know, uh, which, which uh, was Im important in, in Britain and, and across Europe. But, um, you know, I've been doing a lot of research in archives across Europe and interviewing people. And, in fact, uh, you know, obviously, this wasn't as important um, uh, an issue of the global 60s and, I don't know, the early 70s as Vietnam or Palestine, or some other uh, issues. But um, I've come across dozens of people who later, you know, engaged with the region, spent their life dealing with the region, who for the first time came into contact with the Arab world through, um, you know, solidarity campaigns with Dofar, um, including in Germany, Denmark, uh, um, uh, so on and so forth. Um, so, you know, this would be one of the 
posters, you see armed struggle and, uh, uh, um, uh, and so on and so forth. But, you know, we have, I found this in, in all kinds of languages, so, you know, German or, uh, you know, uh, common struggle, uh, uh, so on and so forth. And um, this was very much related to the new left in Europe. And there was, quite interestingly, a lot of, um, uh, you know, discussions about ideas and a lot of uh, um, uh, a flow of, of ideas between Europe and um, the, the Middle East at that time, which I think, um, uh, well, was very interesting. So a lot of these groups, particularly FLOAC, but also the PFLP, uh, and others uh, started to uh, adopt um, a lot of the ideological, uh, ideological developments that were uh, going on in Europe, and there was um, really, um, you know, quite significant interaction there. Uh, something which I think um, is not necessarily the case um, anymore. So why did these movements fail? Um, because they did have, uh, you know, um, significant popular support in the regions. In the Cold War, there were players, significant players that were willing to back them, Soviet Union, but also particularly China. China was one of the key backers of the Dofa rebels, which were more Maoist, in fact, because this was a, they started the, the, this liberation struggle from the mountains of Dofar. Um, so they were really um, you know, trying to emulate the kind of Maoist approach. Um, and then there were also smaller uh, states that were willing to, you know, to give uh, some help. Um, even uh, uh, North Korea, um, uh, Vietnam, or Cuba, um, uh, to name a few, but also regional countries like Iraq, Syria, and uh, uh, Nasser's Egypt. So why did these movements fail? I mean, I think, you know, a large part comes down to these movements were largely crushed, uh, both militarily and ideologically. So effective counter-revolution. It's fashionably co uh, termed uh, counter-insurgency, of course, uh, and in fact, if you look at the literature on, you know, modern warfare, the Dofar War is uh, is in the literature presented as a, a great, uh, you know, great victory and, and one of the first where the hearts and minds approach and, uh, you know, a cleaner approach to counterinsurgency, one that was later taken up by the Israelis uh, and, and by, uh, you know, the Brits and the, the Americans, Afghanistan and Iraq, was uh, developed. So, you know, um, a good case study in counterinsurgency. But let's call it counterrevolution because that's what it was. So, Britain sent the SAS out. Um, obviously, there was secret at the time, um, but um, uh, had a pretty significant impact uh, in Dofar um, uh, because um, the Sultan's armed forces under the old Sultan bin Taymur in the late 1960s, was losing this war, and uh, Britain was getting worried, um, as I mentioned, that if uh, Dofar falls or if the Sultan falls, the other Gulf states will probably also fall, and therefore this really has to be stopped. And um, uh, the local armed forces could not do it anymore, even though the local armed forces also contained already a lot of British seconded officers and uh, mercenaries from other parts particularly other parts uh, of the empire. Um, so this uh, was one of, uh, you know, uh, several hundred uh, SAS uh, forces, but also the Shah uh, sent quite a significant uh, troop dispatchment, and uh, Jordan um, did the same to, uh, um, to help the Sultan uh, uh, of Oman. But which Sultan of Oman? That was another question. So... The old sultan was seen as not uh, being willing to implement 
the, um, uh, the strategies that the British advisers uh, thought he should do. And they included, um, you know, limited political uh, and economic reforms. Um, and so uh, the UK, the, the Foreign Office, together with um, uh, uh, British uh, seconded officers that were officially serving in the Sultan's Armed Forces, but under the old Sultan, um, uh, together um, um, uh, drew up a plan whereby uh, Sultan Qaboos, um, the son of uh, Bin Taymur, would orchestrate a coup and overthrow his um, uh, father. Um, and um, now there is some, there was some dis- debate and speculation for a long time how much involved, particularly the Foreign Office was, but um, uh, files that were recently released and then reclassified again one of the more embarrassing aspects of the National Archives uh, classification policy. Um, but anyway, they got out, um, uh, say that you know, the Foreign Office was directly involved, and in fact, uh, British uh, officers uh, shot at the old Sultan. There was always the story that he shot himself in the foot. Uh, that was the official line before. Anyway, that did not happen. So this is just the most extreme example, I suppose, of um, you know, uh, making sure that the ruling families in the Gulf also w- amongst themselves, I mean, uh, were stable. So you put in charge pro-Western branches uh, of the ruling family that are, um, you know, uh, susceptible to considerable influence. Let's put it that way. And this happened also across a number of other countries um, uh, in the region. And quite most important, I mean, one of the key other examples is also um, the kind of um, takeover in Saudi Arabia uh, by uh, King Faisal, who um, uh, deposed um, uh, King Saud, um, uh, you know, his uh, um, half-brother in uh, 1962 and then effectively in 1964, which also happened with uh, American approval, although we still also don't know very much um, about that since, um, as you can imagine, uh, Saud, you know, wasn't really revolutionary in any sense. In fact, the first cartoon that I showed you, uh, you know, was depicting Saud, but he was uh, at times kind of, you know, wavering between a more kind of Arab nationalist line, at times making regional alliances with Nasser, um, and he wasn't, uh, you know, uh, following uh, in line um, uh, closely. So apart from that, there was also a, another key strategy was um, obviously the building up of uh, internal security forces, particularly, um, you know, when it was decided that um, uh, the armed forces should withdraw from the Gulf, it was necessary that um, the domestic security forces um, would be able to crush domestic dissent and uh, well, keep the regimes in power because externally, um, because British forces would not be on the ground anymore to ensure that in a worst-case scenario, um, uh, you know, this would happen. So the most blatant and the, the, I suppose the most um, well-known example is the case of Bahrain, where in 1965 there was a large um, strike uh, movement, again organized by these clandestine political parties that I've mentioned before, particularly the Bahrain National Liberation Front, which was uh, a communist uh, party, um, pretty significantly managed to um, you know, bring Bahrain to a halt. And um, after that, um, you know, uh, a couple of uh, protesters were killed. And in response to that, uh, the, the Liberation Front assassinated a number of special branch officers who had actually been in charge of internal security, uh, you know, one Brit and another Jordanian. 
which in fact um, you know, eliminated uh, the kind of uh, internal security forces in Bahrain and for a few months um, made the regime very vulnerable. So Ian Henderson uh, was brought in as, uh, you know, to become the new head of um, internal uh, security of Bahrain, a position he would hold until the late 1990s. So, you know, a lot of these developments that I'm talking about, it might seem very far away, but somehow people in the Gulf, even now Brits who relocate there, live much longer than, than we do here. So these things do have some significance uh, until today. So Ian Henderson, um, you know, had previously been, uh, you know, colonial police officer involved in, in, in a lot of the campaigns across, you know, towards the end of empire, Malaya, uh, and so on and so forth. But most importantly was probably the key person in the crackdown on the Mau Mau rebellion in Kenya. Um, after that, he was, uh, you know, the, the, the new Kenyan government expelled him um, and, uh, you know, uh, tried to somehow get hold of him. It didn't work. And he got this new job in Bahrain. Um, uh, so, you know, he had very good experience with um, uh, dealing with political detainees, um, using, uh, you know, a reasonable amount of uh, torture uh, in, in, in getting concessions and uh, 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 confessions. And he managed to penetrate these, uh, these political movements um, and basically undermine them. Um, but similar figures were installed, obviously, across, uh, across the Gulf states. Um, in Saudi Arabia, obviously, the story is a more story of, of American uh, security assistance. But in the smaller Gulf states, Oman um, uh, and so on, um, Britain was very much the driving force um, uh, of this. So this is a you know, picture of uh, Sultan Qaboos. Um, mentioning America, one of the other key dimensions here was that, in fact, Britain and the United States didn't have exactly the same views on what should happen. Um, this is partly because of Britain's uh, prior, uh, you know, colonial territories in the Middle East, its experience with Nasser, particularly Arab nationalism. So Britain saw Arab nationalism as a huge problem. I mean, you know, uh, the Suez War was a reaction to that, um, a fatal reaction, and we all remember the Americans thought that was a you know, horrible idea because it undermined the whole project of the Americans, which was more, you know, Cold War uh, perspective and trying to, you know, limit the Soviet Union's uh, ability to penetrate the Middle East, and they thought, the Americans thought that Britain's policies were detrimental to that. And this also manifested itself um, in the Gulf, uh, for example, in dealing with these, uh, you know, Republican officers regime in North Yemen, but also Marxist South Yemen. The United States really quickly recognized both states, uh, wanted to establish some form of relations with them, whereas the British were furious and, you know, angry that they'd been driven out and, and scared for their possessions uh, in the upper Gulf. Um, it's partly also related to, you know, that Saudi Arabia and British-influenced uh, territories had territorial disputes, such as in the Buremi Oasis, um, you know, between uh, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, or the then Trucial States, and Oman. Um, this is, in fact, a territorial dispute that still uh, remains um, until today. Um, but it means that... so. Anyway, towards the late 1960s and early 1970s, uh, Britain withdraws from the Gulf, so the United States uh, becomes the dominant military power in the region with an intermezzo of the 1970s when the Shah, another key Cold War ally um, that has, you know, just, uh, well, at the beginning of the 1970s, he sends troops to Oman, so literally becomes the policeman uh, of the Gulf. And um, while there is some 
um, you know, uh, ressentiment amongst, uh, you know, the Arab populations on the Arab side uh, and perhaps amongst some of the leaders, basically, I mean, in Oman's case, he was very much, the Iranians were very much involved in, um, you know, helping the Arab rulers uh, survive. So a lot of the kind of uh, Iran, Gulf Iranian tensions that we talk about today are somehow a very ahistorical reading of um, what went on. In fact, I have a quite good friend, a Bahraini Shia, who was, uh, you know, one of the rebels in Dofar, and he sometimes tells me, you know, um, we used to, um, I mean, he told me in an Iranian restaurant in Bahrain at the time of the uprising, you know, when everything was all the Iranians and, and, and the Shia and everything, the Shia against the Sunnis and so on and so forth, he told me, ah, yeah, you know, uh, I, I remember when I smelled this, uh, this kind of, uh, you know, kubide kebab and these grilled onions because they eat so many onions, we always uh, just waited for the smell of the onions in Dofar and then went to kill the Iranians because they couldn't live without their food, so it was very easy to, to, to find them. So um, if you see such anecdotes just show that the history of the region is quite uh, a bit more complicated than it's sometimes um, presented. Um, on this map, it just shows you the, the United Arab Emirates, uh, which were you know, created in the early 70s. And in fact, Floak um, did have quite considerable um, support in the Emirates. And um, you know, some Omanis obviously consider the Emirates part of Oman. There were um, debates over whether this country would um, uh, you know, continue to exist. And Floak, you know, the, this, this movement that led the Dofar Rebellion, certainly wanted to incorporate and the Emirates in their, um, you know, in their future state. But um, cells in the Emirates were discovered pretty quickly um, and uh, dismantled. So apart from the hard um, you know, military and you know, domestic security, um, uh, I suppose, counter-revolution, there was also the level of ideas that needed to be tackled. And in my view, um, the main kind of weapon that was used against uh, the movements that I've been speaking about today was Islam, or some version of uh, Islam and politics. Um, and I will try to explain why. Um, the British government, the American government, uh, and various pro-Western Arab governments, such as Jordan, Lebanon, Saudi Arabia... Um, uh, and others, um, throughout most of the period of the Cold War, but particularly you know, from the 1960s onward, um, started to produce uh, propaganda material, some of it which was um, obviously copied from broader anti-communist um, uh, propaganda campaigns across the world, but uh, a lot of it then, because um, it was seen that the kind of you know, general um, you know, depictions of poverty in Russia or, or how the situation was in some rural China uh, was not really, uh, the Arabs weren't receptive to that. So there was, uh, uh, particularly towards the late 1960s, a kind of um, approach to more targeted uh, counter uh, ideology, ideology and, and, and propaganda in the Middle East, which focused more on um, you know, local narratives and uh, not so much on these broader Cold War narratives. And you know, one of the key um, arguments that was made was that um, communism, socialism, and even this Arab socialism uh, was basically against Islam. And um, uh, we see that from diplomatic correspondence from the United States and uh, Britain, which also often includes you know, um, propaganda uh, from the Arab uh, states. And I'm just going to show you one uh, 
picture which uh, I suppose uh, symbolizes this um, uh, very clearly, and that is this. The uh, cartoon published um, uh, in, the, uh, in, in Oman, uh, in the leaflet, uh, you know, which on the fist is the logo of the Sultan's Armed Forces, and it says, the hand of God crushes communism, and obviously crushes the Red Star. So this is the visualization of the idea. But this idea was um, propagated with a considerable amount of resources for several decades, and um, I do think it had considerable impact as such um, uh, you know, campaigns have if they're take, uh, carried out for a long time. So across these different countries that I've been talking about, but also across other, you know, in other countries uh, of, of the region, and in fact, not just you know, the, the Middle East, but in other um, you know, Muslim-majority countries, such as Indonesia. I mean, in the last few years, a lot of uh, you know, uh, material has come out on what happened in Indonesia in 1965, uh, right where an allegedly communist uh, coup um, uh, led to a kind of uh, counter um, uh, revolution, um, if you like, which was basically organized around the military and um, two uh, organized uh, Islamic movements, um, which led to a uh, massacre of, uh, uh, we don't really know, but several million people uh, uh, allegedly communists. Um, of course, here the number of uh, deaths are not um, so significant, but it was a broader, um, uh, a broader pattern. And so Islamic groups were built up in the Gulf states uh, as a counterforce, um, both in terms of, um, you know, resources, um, but, for example, uh, um, you know, the state started funding mosques, started funding, um, you know, giving headquarters to prominent clerics, um, and started funding new uh, universities, uh, uh, new international organizations. This is particularly in Saudi Arabia. Um, um, King Faisal, basically, you know, who became the driving force of the uh, you know, uh, of, of the Saudi side and the monarchy side and the Islamic side in this Arab Cold War, um, you know, established the um, organization of uh, Islamic cooperation um, uh, uh, and so on and so forth. And through these organizations, new networks were created, um, funded, particularly after 1973 by a new windfall of oil prices. So 1973 is really the key date here uh, because it is the date where Arab nationalism finally loses its, um, you know, last appeal, I suppose. Um, and in response to that, you know, the Arab, uh, I mean, the oil-producing states um, start an embargo, which leads to a spike in oil prices. So the, oil, so the Gulf states win on two levels. They win on the level of ideas, but also on the level of resources. So by 1973, this threat is largely... Um, diminished in the, in the Middle East. But the patterns that have been set in place before um, are in place. And so the new oil money, to a large extent, goes towards that, um, funding an Islamization of society at home and the spreading of uh, you know, certain interpretations of Islam across the world. And in Saudi Arabia, this becomes even more important after 1979, when you have the takeover of the Grand Mosque in Mecca by um, militants led by Juhayman al and simultaneously you have an uprising in the eastern province uh, led by a Shia Islamist group. So a double challenge from uh, you know, Islamic movements and the Iranian revolution, um, which really 
challenge uh, Saudi Arabia, and particularly on uh, Islamic grounds. So I will just say a few words on the continuation of, uh, you know, uh, where I think in some of the path, I mean, some of the trajectories that have been set in place in the Arab world in this particular context led us afterwards. Um, so simultaneously, in 1979, um, 1978, a communist uh, party comes to power in Afghanistan through a coup, and uh, you know the United States, um, uh, President Carter authorizes covert aid uh, to opponents of the pro-Soviet regime in, in Kabul. Uh, at the time, it was denied that this was done. It was said that this only started after the Soviets invaded, but in fact, it was a trap uh, to lure the Soviets uh, into intervening in Afghanistan. And, you know, this close alliance between particularly Saudi Arabia and the United States, Britain by then doesn't play such an important role anymore, I'm afraid to say, but plenty on Britain in the first half of the talk. Um, by that time, the CIA and, the, and Saudi Arabia say we're going to match dollar-to-dollar -dollar funds that are being uh, sent to the rebels in uh, Afghanistan, um, you know, rebels that later become the Taliban um, uh, and so on and so forth. So the Afghan jihad is born, and it is an outcome of this uh, alliance and an outcome of, um, you know, it's the final kind of stage of the battle uh, of using uh, Islam versus communism. And it has very, you know, real implications. Um, and in the sense, um, it also works. But let me just give you, um, you know, uh, an example on a visual level, since, you know, this is a PowerPoint presentation after all. Um, here, this is the logo of Afghanistan, the emblem on the, on the flag of Afghanistan in the 1980s. And as you see, there's a red star and a book. So which book do you think this might depict? The Quran, exactly. That's what we would all think, isn't it? Because the Muslims, you know, they all read the Quran, and that's the most important thing about the Middle East and the Islamic world. Um, maybe another suggestion? Does Kapital. Does Kapital, yes. So... This is the flag of Afghanistan in the 1980s with a depiction of this capital on the flag. So you will probably already know what my pun will be, but I'm going to make it anyway. This was the flag, you know, after the establishment of the Islamic Emirate uh, in Afghanistan, which, as it's supposed to be, has the Quran in its, uh, in its emblem and the current... Uh, you know, flag of Afghanistan obviously has the Shahada uh, and uh, uh, on top there, you, you, you see, um, um, you know. Uh, so I am speaking a little bit about Islam, but really only towards the end. But it shows you on a very symbolic level, um, I suppose, the argument that I want to make. And perhaps lastly, a very famous quote that some of you will be familiar with by um, Brzezinski, um, Carter's national security advisor, who said, what is most important to the history of the world, the Taliban or the collapse of the Soviet empire, some stirred-up Muslims or the liberation of Central Europe and the end of the Cold War? Well, he, of course, knew what his answer was, but it increasingly becomes quite a difficult answer, uh, I mean, to answer this good question. So, to conclude, um, the roots of the regional security architecture and, you know, the problems of authoritarianism in the Middle East and the wider region are to be found in the Cold War era. 
decline of secularism and the rise of Islamism um, was a deliberate strategy during the Cold War to ensure regime survival and to achieve broader objectives you know, in the broader Cold War frame work. And it worked. But at the same time, you know, this co-option by regimes after 1973 and the tremendous oil resources that the Gulf states had at their disposal ever since to pursue their policies have had you know, very, very important uh, consequences for both the Middle East but also um, you know, Muslim communities and countries uh, around the world. So I assume there will be some questions, <laughs> and uh, I thank you for coming.